and welcome to the Rights Collective podcast, a place where we'll explore the distinct and subtle ways that gendered and other forms of inequality manifest within the British South Asian diaspora. With this podcast, we hope to vocalise the lived experiences within our communities, while inviting dialogue with those who engage with it. This season, we'll be focusing on how our identities have been shaped by our culture, religion, gender, sexuality, upbringing and more. Through interviews with guests from the diaspora, we'll gain an insight on the diverse identities within our communities and learn how others have balanced the intersecting and perhaps conflicting aspects. In today's episode, I am joined by Taymour Fazlani, mental health advocate and founder of Expert by Experience, a volunteer-led multimedia platform approaching conversations on mental health from an intersectional and critical lens. Together, we discussed how his background has impacted his activism and the ways in which he navigates the mental health spaces within the South Asian community. Hi, Timur. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me on. Have you been quite busy? Because you have a you what you have a day job, right? And you run Expert by Experience yourself, yeah. right? Yeah, so I have a day job and uh, then I run Expert by Experience parallel to my day job. And yeah, so I can be quite busy sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I bet. What do you do in your day job? So I work in like primarily like data. Um, so my day job is like very different to what I do with Expert by Experience. So and typically, you know, I would say, you know, sometimes people do day jobs like in our field who don't really enjoy them. I I enjoy my day job because it, it is so, you know, it's just figures and numbers and data. So it allows me to have like emotional distance from it, which is which kind of appeals to a part of my brain where I can just, you know, focus on things. Whereas with expert, expert by experience, I'm just so emotionally invested in everything I do that um, it can be sometimes quite overwhelming. Yeah. Could you talk to me a little bit like about how expert by experience came about? I know that you... Um... You talk quite freely about how your journey with anxiety um, was kind of like a motivator for for starting Expert by Experience, and yeah, you mentioned particularly like a, a, a like a breaking point in twenty fourteen. Yeah, I just wondered like what your journey was creating Expert by Experience. Obviously, a lot is in the name, so um, so yeah, like what was what was your experience with with that? Yeah, so it's like um, that's an interesting thing. So there's, I think. There's two sides to the story around why Expert by Experience came about. So the first, uh, I guess, journey starts before 2014. So I, um, when I was around 2021, I, I started my own website. Uh, I was just, uh, you know, I was just doing some blogging. And this is like at a point where I was becoming politicized as a university student. So um I had this little blog and I was, you know, I was just writing articles. Um, and then at the time, Media Diversified came around to be as an organization, as a publication. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was very closely aligned to that publication from the get-go. So when I did the initial logo, I used to help out with things like Jalak Prize, which is still going, which is a book prize for Black slash people of color writers. So I was really, really involved with media diversified and I think I was able to gauge as to how you you should or how you can run an online publication 
So I was like, you know what, one day I would like to be in this position. Um, in this position in the sense that, um, so Media Diversified was very encouraging in the sense that they would actively encourage us to go and pitch to bigger publications like The Guardian, The New Statesman, uh, very mainstream cen- center politics uh, publications. And I remember I pitched an article uh, to The New Statesman um, and it was around colorism. And uh, I remember their editor came back to me and said, well, oh, we just published something around this. So we're not going to publish your piece. And that, I'm not going to lie, that kept that made me quite salty. Um, mm. It made me salty for a lot of reasons because I was just like, one, it's unfair. Uh, it's unfair in the sense that you use our narratives to benefit you. And then you don't really make an effort to paint the holistic picture. So at the time I was like, one day if I have something, all 10 like black slash people of color writers will, when they pitch, they will get published. So I always had like, you know, that kind of like a dream in the back of my head, but I didn't, there was nothing that made me, you know, manifest it at the time. Um, so in around 2014, I finished university and um, I started my first ever full-time job, which uh, was literally like, almost like a punch in the face because I went from being, you know, being a university student who had a relatively relaxed schedule, who was being deadly honest, enjoying life. Uh, I was, you know, especially because that was a time when I was becoming very politicized. So it was, it was, an, it was a beautiful time for me. 2013 was a very beautiful year for me because I, I was becoming politicized. I was going to protest. I was going to, I was going to gigs like Alcala's gig. I went to that. And I was going to like events and stuff like that. So it was very, very beautiful year for me. And then 2014 is such a contrast because the only way to personify it is just like, I was just like picked out of, you know, almost like this bubble that I created and I was just plucked into something that felt very alien. So I had to like, I got my first full-time job, which I'm grateful for. And it's a privilege to be able to have that. But I had to wake up at six. I had to be at the office by eight. I would finish at 6 p.m., get home around 8. So I, I didn't have those time freedoms anymore. And I had to, like, you know, I had to, at the time, because I because I was quite young and I had people around me saying, you know, you should, like, you should make yourself more, uh, quote, unquote, cleaner for the office. So, like, when I was an activist, I had, like, big hair, <laughs> big beard. I was yeah. like, but uh, for my job, I had to, like, cut my beard, which is such a central part of my identity. Yeah. I had to like dress up in trousers and whatnot. So it was just such a shock to the system. Make yourself palatable. Exactly. I had, I made myself so palatable to the point where I forgot who I was. And it, it did create an identity crisis. But at the time, there were some personal things going on at home. My nephew was born so premature. So it, it, all of it, like the sense of identity loss, feeling like I, I wasn't me anymore, having the things going on at home family was getting evicted as well from our house that we had rented for nine to ten years and all that happened at the same time and my brain just could not handle it anymore it it was the worst time for me i my brain just i still remember quite vividly I, i would have so many symptoms related to anxiety but no one to provide me guidance no one that helped me and it was a thing where we didn't really discuss it at home either so um, yeah, that that anxiety, severe anxiety, depression, uh, it 
it, it, it took away a long time. It took like two years for me to be able to feel quote unquote normal again. Um, so once that happened, I, 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 did, I was like, you know what, I'm going to write an article about this, which I did. Uh, and then the article went viral. And then I just, people became interested. They were like, oh, would you like to come to, and speak at this event and that event? And I think over time, it just developed to the point where I was enjoying being on like, you know, this solo individual circuit where I was going to speak at events and I didn't, didn't necessarily have like big plans either. I was just kind of like free-floating it. Um, but then last year I was at an event and uh, they were introducing people on, on the panel and they were like, you know, this person's an academic, this person's a, a psychologist and Tamo, he's just, uh, well, he's just an expert by experience based on what he's gone through. And then that was it. That was, I was like, you know what, it's time to start expert by experience. Yeah. Wow, that's so cool. Um, you kind of fell into the name, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, and yeah, I, I, I fell into the name. And I think, you know, you can people reframe things that have happened to their lives in any way, which way possible. For me, I think initially things happened at a very good time. I, I, you know, I joined Media Diversified, etc. And I had those and I had those, you know, dreams of wanting my own publication, but I think I I redefined my trauma in that I had to go through those things to be able to come up with expert by experience. I don't think expert by experience would have existed had it not been for the mental health uh, illness or illnesses that I had for quite a long time. I mean, as the name suggests, you kind of had to go through those things to 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 realize where your place was, you know and what kind of things you wanted to add to the conversation. I'm wondering, like, how did your background, you know, being a Pakistani man, being a, a, an immigrant of working class background, how did these things manifest in the way that you experienced that journey and like how, it, how you know, mental health had affected your life? And then I guess also in your choice to, to start Expert by Experience and to be very vocal about the, the mental health space within, within our community, especially within, amongst men. Yeah. Uh, it's a, that's an interesting question and it's something that I need to explore more when I reflect to be able to you know, explore my, my, more myself but like you know Pakistani working class immigrant uh, moved here with my family at the, at the age of nine experienced like heaps of racism um, mm. and yeah like my experience initially in terms of like you know how I experienced mental health was very isolating um when I was going through my episodes, I never really talked to my parents about how I was feeling. And it, it, it was a central theme for a very long time. And, you know, it's, it, we, we talk about it now, but at the time it was quite isolating. And it, it still is, especially from the perspective of someone who has been socialized and identifies as a, as a man. These types of conversations are not uh, very common amongst those who identify as Pakistani men. And, you know, and that's not, a, okay, that's a critique of other men, but then there's also a critique of me in there because um, I, so I belong to a particular sect of Islam. So like I am from the Amity sect, um, which is as to why we're in the UK because they're persecuted in Pakistan. Um, so they have this annual convention where like Amity's from all across the world <laughs> come and uh, they, there's like, it's like a three-day event and my parents, you know, I, I was 16, so my parents were like, you need to do something because it's a three-day event and I would just like walk around the convention for for days doing nothing. <laughs> so they put me in this hygiene team where I clean the toilets, 
for the three days. So we I, we stay there for a week, effectively. And so I've been doing this for a long time. And the guy who is like the head of the hygiene team, he's he recently has been battling cancer. And uh, and, and this is I'm just using this example as a way to show you how ingrained it is in me as well. He so he's had cancer and he's been battling cancer for a long time, going chemo and and the types of tests and treatment that he has is quite invasive. And last year he turned around to me and said, he said, he said, I'm depressed. And because we've never had a conversation like that, and it's not a conversation I expect from an, an elder Pakistani man to turn around to me, someone who's 25 years younger than him, to look for that kind of guidance and support. I, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I, I said nothing. I just smiled. It took me by such shock. Mm. So that shows you how prevalent you know, that kind of attitude is in terms of those who identify as Pakistani men, in terms of how we engage with mental health. Because this is me, right? This is a quote-unquote expert by experience, someone who is known for being, like, emotionally open, etc. But in that moment, I had, I just, I didn't say nothing. Yeah, so it's, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a lot that comes with, with my identity or our wider identity and how we engage with mental health. But you can never discount how you will respond to different uh, experiences and situations of course and i guess even when especially when we're doing this kind of work like it i guess it always kind of starts with yourself you know and it's it's, it's a constant process of unlearning and and relearning and and reacting in different ways to situations that maybe you wouldn't have before so yeah it's like a, it's a, definitely a constant journey it's really interesting actually because on the flip side, I feel like majority, I would say, of conversations happening, especially in like mental health spaces within the South Asian community, I feel like a lot of them are from a gendered lens, but, mm. but like a feminist lens. Um, I know obviously Theraki do their, um, they, they're very centered on like male mental health. And I know you work quite closely with them too, but, but it is very interesting about like the need for male South Asian voices within especially the mental health space like did <clears throat> like even this interaction with with the elder at the um at the at the convention at the MV con- conventions like did that did those kind of make you more aware of the need for your voices within these spaces because obviously like it's a very I guess it's kind of a uh a, a balancing act in some way you know how much space you're taking up in these spaces what kind of what kind of space you're carving and what kind of perspectives you're bringing you know, that's all quite a lot um, to, to think about, especially as a man. Yeah, so it's um, it's an interesting one. I feel like the more I've exposed myself to the mental health dialogue in South Asian communities, the more I've realized the need for expert by experience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and to an extent, someone like me who can be quite emotionally open um. So yeah, it, it's quite an interest, interesting one. Like just like a few observations I've had is that, so yes, Theraki do amazing work. They do incredible work. Um, but you know, they have a sp- specific focus on those who identify as Punjabi. So someone yeah. the other day tweeted me saying, hey, do you know of any men's group for South Asian men? And I was like, um, I really had to like think about it and do some research around it, which then just relates back to the point where I said, like, you know, the more exposure I get, the more I realize for I need of something like expert by experience. Um, mm-hmm. This is why I think I'm in 2021, I'm really focusing on creating workshops for South Asian men. 
um, because I feel like a lot currently, not a lot, but quite a few of the organizations that exist specifically cater to Punjabi uh, folks, uh, which means that there are other demographics that often do feel like there isn't a space for them. Um, yeah, so it's been an interesting journey in that regard. Um, and like specific to me, it, it, it's a it's a balancing act where I try to be mindful of the space or mindful of the my space within the wider movement, uh, and then I also try to be mindful of you know not taking up too much space. Mm-hmm. So this is something that uh, Nishma, the Rice Rice Collective, said. Is, mm-hmm. um, I think it's a you step up and step down scheme. Yeah. So just being just being mindful of the fact that you know you don't want to occupy too much space because you have to help and ensure that other people get other people get a uh, a word in as well. Um, so I think for me personally, like navigating that is just an ongoing process. Um, but in terms of expert by experience as an organization, as an initiative, as a mission or whatever you, you want to call it, the more I engage with mental health in the communities, the more I feel like there is a need for not just expert by experience, but more organizations who are actively meeting communities where they're needed. In terms of like, I know in our previous conversation, we, we, we spoke a little bit about like what activism means and like how, I think you said from before, you, you kind of had a fixed idea of, of activism and how to engage with activism. And I just wondered like your relationship with activism now, like in the face of expert by experience and how it's growing and how it will grow and um, the kind of people that you're coming into contact with and what that kind of means to you as 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 a Pakistani man, like who you know, doing the work that you do, yeah, it's it's an interesting area to explore. So this is something I'm currently writing about. Yeah, so like I've been quote unquote been an activist for about nine ten years, and so you know, like initially the way I get into with activism, I saw it to be very much like a physical presence. So you have to be outside an embassy, you had to be outside a, a you know, like a store or wherever it was that you were needed and you're just protesting. So I saw it as very much like a physical presence. And then, you know, and this is something that history uh, or revised history always endorses as well. It's the fact that they center on particular individuals and those individuals tend to be, you know, quite vocal, quite, uh, quite ferocious personalities, right? They're out there shouting at police. They're out there holding governments accountable, etc. And that was never me. <laughs> it, yeah. it was never me. I, I, if you put me on the spot, I struggle. I struggle a lot. Um, so, like you know, I initially saw this kind of like this hyper focused role, I guess, or uh, archetype for what an activist should be. And I just knew from the day that I that I started, you know, be, became an activist. I was like, that's that could not, that's not me. It, it just isn't me. I'd be lying to myself if that was. Mm-hmm. So you know, over the years, it's like coming up to like twenty twenty, well, twenty twenty one. So like ten years of being a quote unquote activist, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's through expert by experience that I've really been able to gauge, or you know, have a form of activism that works with the kind of person that I am. So expert by experience is very much online digital focus, which is you know where my skills are. So it has been a journey of like the best part of a decade being able to understand what my role is within 
the movement because movement yes it is comprised of people you know who are out there holding governments accountable holding companies accountable but then you have people who are cooking the food then you have people who are picking up litter then you have people who are creating just like posters for the protest so once i was really able to understand that that's when i started to realize where my place was and i think that's also a critique of myself as to how i tend to hyper um what's the specific term i tend to focus on very hyper masculine figures so you know Mm -hmm. growing up you read about malcolm x vocal person holding governments accountable you never well, I never really learned about, you know, Coretta Stone, etc. People behind the scenes who whose labor was invisibilized. Um, and then over time, being able to, you know, engage with someone like that and also critiquing myself and how I view specific things, I was able to just, you know, understand that where my role is and my role currently is just cultivating spaces and a platform for people to be able to come and share their voice. That is it. That's like, that's all I do. Um, and it's a good place to be. Uh, I feel comfortable with my form of activism. I, I feel very happy with what it's able to provide people. And, you know, it, it works for me. Um, it works for me in in this time and moment. I, I think it reminds me of, of when you were speaking about um, your work in publishing and how, you know, even that story about like you pitched that, that, that piece about colorism to the new statesman and uh, you know they said it, it they had already reached their colorism quota so <laughs> you know what I mean it just reminded me of that because I, I guess you're kind of doing you're doing what you love in your own way to for a certain purpose which I think is like that's completely activism you know you don't have to be out there uh, screaming on the embassy doors you know you, of course that is just as much activism as this but but as you said, like, what about the people behind the scenes? What about, you know, when you're in the MD convention, you were cleaning the toilets, like you were still very much part of the convention. You were still there. You were still an integral member of how it ran, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, so- yeah, exactly. And it's, um, and I, I think also in relation to someone who identifies as a Pakistani cis man, yeah. it's interesting and it's important to be able to, for men to take up, not take up, but, uh do labor that is invisibilized because it's been done by women so typically you know women will do the invisible labor at a protest or a movement and they'll never get recognition for it and then the men the men will be you know or history will tell us that men were at the front lines shouting at the government etc so it's important for me who identifies as a cis man to take that space and you know take that step back and then do forms of labor i don't know what i'm trying to say but no, I completely understand you. Yeah, I'm just um um, and I completely back that. And I think, uh, sorry, my mind just went off when when while you were talking, I was just thinking like it's very. Now that I'm actually thinking about it, it's quite rare that I meet Asian men, or maybe I just don't have as as in depth conversations with them. But the like the work that you're doing, and even you like saying stuff like, oh, you know, uh, to do the invisible invisible work, like the women used to do. I know you wrote an article about um not burdening the women in your life with your mm. emotional burdens. Um, I'm quite interested in how your journey with gender kind of like developed in that way. Because for me, like the men, the South Asian men that I've come into contact with who have this kind of consciousness or have started this journey of like unlearning gender and gendered roles, they often like, it often comes from like uh, 
them having sisters or them having moms, single mothers who have shown them the struggles that maybe Asian women go through at mm-hmm. the hands of men. So I'm just wondering like where this has, has come from, where your journey with this started, because you when you speak, you you speak like it's clear that you you are doing personal work in this area. Yeah, so like so uh my family like so it's my mom and my dad, like Amiyabu, and uh, my mom had three sons, uh and uh mm-hmm. every Sunday she was like, We're going to clean the house because it's important for you to learn to clean the house. She's like, no way am I going to do everything. Um, So I had some level of, you know, some level of like understanding of gender uh, or, you know, what role I should be playing and how gender things are in the household. But really it's, and this is where, you know, I acknowledge like a a lot of the, my understanding of gender has, is something that I've explored and comes a lot from my partner. So my partner, Anania, who is a creative director, She's a feminist illustrator. And, you know, we've had, we've been together for almost five years, but through our relationship, I, and we've been able to develop my understanding of gender a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very much willing to learn. So, you know, like, I don't want to portray as if I've always been like this woke man who mm-hmm. understands gender, et cetera, because I have, I was, re- I was a socialized as a cis man, right? So yeah. I, I was told like, you know, all the worst things that you can be told. And I've seen domestic violence in my own like family. I've, I, I grew up in Pakistan. Like I've seen so much domestic violence. So there was always that fire in me where I knew I was like, this is disgusting and it's so wrong. Honestly, the amount of domestic violence I saw. And at the time, even as a kid, I would just be like, you know what? I never want to grow up to be like that. Like never. Like it, it was just, it's, I can't describe it right now, but it's just, it was... I looked at that and I was like, you know what? I never want to grow up to be like that. So I was open and willing to learn, despite the fact that, you know, even in school, like people would call me like quote unquote sweet boy because I would just want to be friends with women. Um, but then it's when I, you know, I before I, I got with my partner in Anya, I was like learning a lot from this literature, um, especially in regards to like uh, gender roles, etc. And then once uh, we're in the relationship that we are now, I've been, I think it's, it's the practice. So you can learn as much as you want. You can be like the wokest man who learn, who reads bell hooks and, you know, <laughs> calls himself an ally. But it really is putting in like the work. Yeah. And that's where I've really been able to practice that within our relationship. So I do t- 100% of the cooking in our house so that my partner can, you know, do her illustration work. Mm-hmm. I, I will clean. I, I love cleaning. And, you know... I, I do these things on a daily basis, but then we also have conversations about what that means. Um, so, you know, my partner and I will, will be like, well, I appreciate that you do that because typically women are, are so burdened by household labor that they cannot actively um, focus on things that make them happy or actively focus on the careers. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, it's, I think, something I'll have to write about just to get my thoughts coherent. But I just knew that I didn't want to be like the men that I saw growing up who would like, you know, beat their partners, beat their children. Like there was just so many stories. And when you see it firsthand, you, you hate it inside. You you hate it so much. And then when you grow up and then, you know, you do someone learning, but then practice is what's like, helped me really be able to challenge those gender stereotypes and how I want to be as a man. And I think that's the most key thing 
it's like inside I, I knew I, I didn't want to be like that and luckily I get to practice what I want to be you're you you spoke about seeing a lot of, of gendered violence back in Pakistan um has that changed now that you're part of the diaspora like are you less I guess less exposed to it in in that way or, or... yeah um <clears throat> I guess in, in I am less exposed and more distant from it but yeah. in I think when you see as a child if you see domestic violence in your own home if and in Pakistan it's like so rampant like domestic violence can happen even on the street and no one's going to say anything and this is like you know there's stories in Pakistan about people throwing acid um so yeah it was just I saw it so much like so much I like and like this is like quite intimate to me but like as a kid I remember like hearing a woman scream in our because we live in we lived in the compound which is quite mm-hmm. common in South Asia um and you would hear like sometimes there was a particular uncle like on the other side of the block who, who was who was an alcoholic and when he would beat his wife you could hear the screams and no one did nothing mm-hmm. like no one did nothing and when you go through stuff like that you grow up and you're just like inside you just you hate it you you know you would it's just wrong like and you know you want to be the complete opposite of that because not only have you experienced it in your own home but you've seen what impact it has and like wider society so uh, that's why whenever i write articles it's directed at men and that's Mm. south asian men like that's my space that's what i do if you want to talk to me about other things i'm happy to do that but i'm not a specialist the place where i'm really trying to enact change is just by working with south asian men Um, and what is the reach of your work like primarily is it diaspora people in the diaspora who engage with um, expert by experience. Yeah, so it's primarily in the diaspora, but it's growing. So we've got people from like Canada, mm-hmm. America, even New Zealand. Cool. But uh, what is happening is it's, uh, and I was looking at my Instagram like analytics the other day. <laughs> it's yeah. like 96% uh, those who identify as women or non-binary folks. So oh, wow. reaching South Asian men is quite a challenge. Uh, yeah. And this is something I've been thinking about is like, how can I reach South Asian men? One, there is a reluctance among South Asian men to discuss something, things like mm. this, you know, there is a, there is a tendency to just like brush it under the carpet and just act like none of this is happening. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so our reach is predominantly uh, South Asian women, um, which is, which frustrates me in the sense that, you know, like, because and I almost feel a lot of shame around it because I wrote an article about how it was like uh, South Asian men do not uh, burden the women in your lives and it was 90% women that engaged and shared the piece whereas the South Asian men were so quiet around it other than like a few of my friends like Shurinji he's like number one (laughs) number one sharer number one supporter so it is a big challenge to reach south asian men um but there are like you know things there's been learnings and observations i found that south asian men never just oh in my experience do not discuss things quite openly or publicly so when i shared that piece there wasn't that much engagement uh publicly so on twitter etc but i'm a part of a few private facebook groups where there are south asian men and that's where they really engage with the piece um so i think just finding ways in uh relative to 
I think Stuart Hall said it best. You you have to meet people where they are, which mm. is not to say it it it's not frustrating sometimes because, like I said, I feel a sense of shame because it's like, why is it again that South Asian women have to carry the piece and share the piece and mm. engage with the piece when it's written for South Asian men? It's like it's a prime example. It, that was literally like a prime example yeah. of what I wrote. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's learnings, but I think it will keep gr- growing and hopefully more and we'll come forward no it's very interesting because I think it also speaks to what we were were discussing earlier about how this this space is very heavily like female based Mm. or very heavily you know female orientated um but yeah I was was just thinking then like what do you think is the first step to getting men engaged because even when you're talking I know we the work that we both do like me with the rights collective you with expert by experience is obviously diaspora based because that's where we are right now and that's the outreach reach that we have but you know like how would you get that drunk uncle in your compound to ever talk about what's really plaguing him you know Mm. it's these kind of things like and even if you're saying to me that diaspora men are reluctant to even share it publicly you know just and that's just an article that that a fellow south asian man has written so yeah, to me, I guess it, it comes to a point where it's like, how then do you, as a man, how do you see getting other men engaged to a point where it's actually effective? Yeah, um, I think, and this is what Thurky do, does this incredibly well. Uh, I think holding private spaces for men to come and discuss subjects is, is probably one of the top ways to get men to engage in su- such subjects. Um, but then also, just being honest and holding each other accountable that's that's where that's where it gets really that that has to be quite firm within the dialogue for me no I, I definitely hear that I definitely hear that I think it's uh it's funny it's funny about the coddling um <laughs> but I think that also speaks to everything that you're trying to tackle as well the whole idea of toxic masculinity like why do men need to be coddled well men need to be coddled because that's how cis men have been raised in, in such a society to to act and to behave and to expect so yeah no I can I completely yeah it, it's yeah it's I think for me and, and this is where I need to personally develop I can be quite stern with other men and I, I pulled out about this on Twitter by another South Asian man he was like he was like you know you have to meet people where they are but you shouldn't be so stern and I get that, like, I, I, I take that on board. I shouldn't be that stern. But my, me being stern doesn't come from me wanting to be mean. Me being stern comes from me wanting to be urgent because, you know, like, I, I expose myself because, you know, 90% of what I write is now centered around men and men's violence and men's mental health. So, like I said, like, I've done so much research and and some of the research will tell you how many people are killed as a result of men that's where the urgency comes from in regards to me and that's why i am a bit stern because it's like like we need to you know (laughs) move fast on this yeah but i I, and i guess it's like um not everyone is not everyone is where you are you know not everyone has done you're exactly you have some sort you have a, a, a bit of a privilege in a way that you are where you are and that you have expert by experience so that you can even that you can even be at a point where you can be stern with other men because you've done, there's, there's work that's gone into that. Of course, you know, you, there's work still to be done and you you admit that whatever, but yeah, the fact that you're even here, like I think is a, is a big thing. And um, 
I think for other men, like, especially when they've never had these conversations before, it must be quite scary. It must be a little bit daunting, maybe a little bit intimidating. You don't want to, you know, you've got all these things of pride and, and uh, yeah. you know, being, 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 being a man, being manly, all these kind of things. So I guess when you're, when you're being approached by such conversations, it can be a little bit daunting, I guess, and, and intimidating. Yeah, I agree completely. And I, and I agree with you completely again that it is it is a privileged position for me to be able to have these dialogues and, you know, be able to unlearn. Yeah. Um, because, you know, there are privileges within my life like that have allowed me to be able to get to this position. So, like, who am I to argue any different, right? Who am I to look down mm-hmm. on anyone? Um, so I always try to retain that. So I think I need, I need to be better in the sense that like you say, if someone's never really had a conversation like this, if someone like me who's being stern comes their way, they'll be like, "Well, I don't want to engage with you because you're, yeah. you're, you're just you're not being nice." Coming at me with this energy, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, so that's a and yeah, that's a very valid criticism and observation, and I do take it on. So I'm trying to think of ways where I can be a bit more emotionally distant from the like the topic, yeah. and cultivate spaces where people are able to speak and you know openly discuss another critique that i have of myself now that we're talking about this um is that i perhaps me being stern is a very gendered way of me engaging with men so if i was Mm. speaking to a woman i would i wouldn't be as stern right (laughs) like i know me i wouldn't be like hey like x and y x and y whereas with men i am a lot more stern so i need to be aware of how i approach and just engage with people in a gendered perspective um so yeah that's something for me to think about yeah it's it's positionality that's what it is i feel it's positionality and you know i think more time there are way more women engaged in these conversations anyway also there are way more like we're encouraged to talk about okay obviously there are exceptions but we're more encouraged to talk about our feelings than men are anyway so you know it's just a I, I think it is just positionality and, and perspective I, I think it comes down to. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, which we're all neg- navigating. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, because like I said, it's a very, uh, it's a very female-heavy space mm-hmm. and there aren't that many South Asian men. So it's a, it's a thing where, like, someone like me who's navigating is someone like Shurindith or someone like McCarvert who runs The Delicate Mind and other folks, uh, we're having to navigate something quite new to us. And within that, we will make mistakes. And I, like, I'll like, i make lots of mistakes. That's, that's just part of unlearning, right? And But I think it's just about being honest when you do make a mistake or, you know, when you lapse somewhere that you admit it and then you learn from it. Um, so I know that I will make mistakes uh, along the journey. No, definitely. It's how you learn. Yeah, um, it's how you learn. It's just, uh, it, I guess, like you were saying with, with men, there is always that ego that's present. So yeah. when you're unlearning very publicly, <laughs> it's yeah. an experience compared to be- being like, you know, behind closed doors, but that's just part of the journey. Yeah, definitely. No, it actually reminds me of, um, I wrote, because uh, I read your uh, article about, um burdening women about men stop burdening women and it, um I wrote a, a similar article about uh for our last zine which was on resilience and it was called strong women won't save us anymore mm. and it was, 
it was about very similar things and it was a uh it was about basically like the fact that masculinity seems to be in a state of kind of stagnation like the the classic the classic forms of masculinity that that men know today are kind of obsolete like we don't women more more and more women don't need a man to provide for them they don't mm. want that either you know um the, the whole notion of masculinity resting on on going out and doing a job that provides for your family um is kind of becoming very obsolete because women can do that themselves now there are so many there are so many avenues for women to, and obviously not all women have these same privileges or luxuries but there does seem to be because because womanhood is redefined all the time there, there are so many ways to be a woman and there aren't actually that many ways to be a man um and i think that's one of the the, the big thing the, the most interesting things that i found because even with my guy friends especially my asian guy friends like i know that these conversations are coming up and i know that that especially like the second and third generation uh friends that i have they are now having the space to think about these things a bit more i think obviously when you're when your parents are first gen so yeah and maybe i'm talking about like uh I don't really know the exact what second gen, third gen means, but when your parents are first gen immigrants, um, as in have immigrated here and weren't socialized here, um, I find that obviously your experience is very different as as a child because you've got a whole like other thing load of 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 kind of uh, like cultural kind of bullshit to to, to navigate. Yeah. But when you go like a, on a generation, so for example, me and my friends who are also in the same kind of uh, you know their parents have been socialized here the men especially within the men like there is space now for you to to kind of be exploring these things and to kind of move away from traditional forms of masculinity like as I said like it does seem like they are in stagnation or like just kind of becoming unneeded unnecessary you know yeah especially in the diaspora context yeah they're becoming redundant and I think because they're becoming redundant there is a level of uh resistance there's like a a, a big level level of resistance but it's not to the extent uh, i've seen with white nationalists uh, in terms of them really holding on to patriarchy and those classic uh modes of masculinity and it's quite interesting to explore that actually uh, as to how south asian men are navigating this remolding of what masculinity means right and it'd be actually a really interesting conversation to have with other South Asian men as to how they perceive it, how they view it, uh, where do they see it going. Um, yeah, like where do we go from here almost, you know? Exactly. It, it, it's really important because before you know it, the conversation and the movement can be hijacked, right, by people who are really resistant. They're like, no, like men are meant to be men, and women are meant to be women, and spark all that nonsense and then use religion as a as a way to be able to, be, to back up. <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 they're like they'll they'll say whatever and then be like yeah well the religious text is this so we kind of have to believe yeah. it um so yeah i think that's a really inter- interesting point like to like to discuss and to understand as well because i yeah i haven't really thought about it much as to how we're navigating that mm-hmm. i i feel like being deadly honest you know like people ask me to talk about like masculinity and south asian masculinity and stuff like that being deadly honest i don't have that many male friends yeah. <laughs> i've got like two 
I, yeah. when I was a teenager and like even 10 years ago, I had so many like male friends. Yeah. But that's slowly, steadily, steadily decreased heavily. And mm. that's where, uh, and I feel like, you know, uh, to an extent that's sad because, you know, I do miss those friends, but also it's allowed me to be able to mold masculinity as I enter my 30s in a way that suits me. So I'm not surrounded by those old pressures anymore, right? Like going out and you have to like, I remember when I was a teenager and we would go out and like, you know, guys would be like, how many numbers did you get? And I'd be like, zero. (laughs) (laughs) Those kinds of like old tropes of masculinity because I don't have that many male friends anymore. I've been almost like alone. So I've been able to be like, look, I want to be like this and I want to, I want to clean and I want to cook and I want to, I want to support my partner so that she can do her Mm -hmm. illustrations, that she can go far. And I'll do the labor at home and stuff like that. But I'm sure it would be, I would find it much more harder to navigate that had I been founded by my cis men who I came up with as a teenager because they were hyper-masculine as hell. So, And I don't, I honestly don't think you're alone in that because I have guy friends, Asian and non-Asian, who don't ascribe to the traditional form of like cis men masculinity. And I know that they go through similar things with their friends, you know, feeling kind of isolated because they maybe don't have the same uh, mentality or outgrowing them. You know, I think even especially the work that you do, it just kind of lends itself to you potentially outgrowing a lot of people that you've been around just because of the nature of the work, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like uh, it's like there have been moments where I've, I've spoken to my friends who I grew up with teenagers, like we were tight when we were teenagers. And now we have nothing to talk about other than the memory yeah. from school. And yeah, so that's why it makes it so, so nice when you meet other uh, men who are like on the same wavelength as you. It's like, so like, I always use this and I talk about Shrindi a lot, but like, and he even wrote an article about it. So that shows you how <laughs> meaningful our bond has become. But like meeting Shrindi, who runs to Lucky, has been one of the most like beautiful things not only for me, but also for my masculinity. Because mm-hmm. him and I are able to cultivate a space that's just so beautiful and nourishing for us, where we're able to learn from each other, where we're able to, you know, correct each other, where we're able to have, also, you know, we have like similar interests. We like cooking, we like cleaning. We're a lot more gentle in how we're spoken. So, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, there was a time in my 20s where I was a bit like, yeah, like, oh, like I tried to be friends with like, friends from my gym and and they turn out to be like not cool but mm-hmm. meeting someone like Shunjit or someone who's the same wavelength for you is then so much more meaning and beautiful yeah no, that's lovely it kind of ties into my next question was about like how the intersection of your identities affect your uh sense of community and sense of self mm. I guess you kind of you kind of answered it like I guess it's about forging your own really and and finding people who are like-minded and finding people who can then relate to you on a level within these new ideas of community that you've kind of defined through your work and and um yeah like for me so like if you were to ask me what my role and the way I engage the way my identity engages with the community is that I identify as a cis man but mm. the way I engage with the community is is that I take a like um, a behind-the-scenes role so that I can just help as many people as I can. And that means doing a lot of invisible or previously, you know, and this is 
this is something quite interesting. So like they see Menless Talk in the Kitchen, the cooking series I have. I was on BBC for it. But then there's so many South Asian women who have Instagram channels where they cook and they didn't go into the BBC, right? So yeah. when I'm actively choosing to take up these in, in like roles where the labor has been invisibilized so that when people come to me and they're like, oh my God, you're a man who's cooking. Well, I, I try and every time someone does something like that, I'm like, well, women have been doing it for decades, if not centuries. Yeah. There we go. That's it. Done. <laughs> like I'm doing it because, uh, because of my Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I'm, that's that's my quote-unquote masculinity and how I engage with the work I do and our communities in general. Do you feel like your working class background has had any effect on the way that you engage with activism through Expert by Experience? Yeah, so like my working class immigrant background plays like a huge role, right? It plays a really big role in terms of how I live, how I make decisions in life and this isn't isn't something I was aware of until I, I like in the last few years um, so you know you have like you know trauma experiences everything guiding what you do and that has become quite central to my activism and EBE in the last two years or so I would say um, so that's why you know when expert by experience and all of the content that goes out there I make it a really important note that all the language has to be accessible so you know you can't mm-hmm. use let me say it the best way if people in ends can't understand what you're saying then mm-hmm. i don't want you to really or i'm not that keen to publish it i think that's the best way to describe mm-hmm. it and i don't want that to sound as if i'm being very exclusive in terms of you know opting for working class people to publish what i really want is that the content that goes out there in terms of mental health for south asian communities is that it's not so middle class centric which is which is what i feel it is right now um, the language that's used, the people who are currently active in the field. Um, mm. So I make it a really important case and point that, you know, we have to use language, we have to put content out, we have to um, also, you know, the work that we do centers around the experiences of everyone. Um, so that's why at Expert by Experience, uh, we have financial literacy workshops because working class people are struggling so much right now. So EB shows up in that way. And then, you know, in terms of other areas like the language we use has to be accessible. So I think I really make a key point of that in everything that I do. Mm. I completely I completely hear that because you're right. I think that the there is such a saturation of like upper class, upper caste mm. as well, mm. um, individuals who are like kind of dominating the activist space. Yeah. Um, but you know, as mm. you said, like who's the target audience and who are you trying to reach? And these and these kind of things really matter. Like, do you think your personal journey being working class and and you know the kind of um this kind of skill sets that you have have you come into any sort of i don't know maybe boundaries or or obstacles through your through what yeah. your work with by experience yeah so i i have and i've i have since i've been an expert by experience and even before that so when i was coming up as a up and coming writer i was quite protected in terms of media diversified there was lots of working class people in that in that collective but I really feel my class background in expert by experience because, you know, I don't have access to things like, you know, an uncle or an auntie guiding me on how to apply for a CIC. I don't have an auntie or an uncle guiding me on how to monetize expert by experience. I don't have an auntie and uncle, you know, allowing me access to networks. So, you know, like uh, they may know a business partner or they may know so, such and such who can, you know, either invest or, you know, spread the word for expert by experience. 
So these are things I've really been experiencing. Um, and I would say there are obstacles um, that I've felt through expert by experience. So it, it does, you know, when you bring the class element into the whole situation, it can make it more challenging. And uh, that's not to say like, you know, I'm not trying my best, but it, it is an experience where I do feel it. And another thing where I really, I've, I have experienced, you know, like coming from a working class immigrant background is the fact that, you know, like you said, in activist circles, there is that like middle class, upper class folks who are doing the work, which is important because, you know, if they're acknowledging their privilege and trying to make sure that mm. our communities are more fair, that's amazing. Like, that's really good to hear. But, you know, like being deadly honest, middle class people have their own way of living. Middle class people have their own way of communication. Middle class people have access to things that I do not or other working class people may not. So you feel it. And it's not a nice feeling as well. Like it's, it could be that the way that they speak amongst each other and you don't really feel like you fit in. They may ask about what your, you know, what your background is, what uni you went to. Like I went to London South Bank. That's, it's like one hundredth on the top few hundred <laughs> university list, um, while you've got folks from like you know like uh, the Russell Group um, and stuff. So in moments like that, you really feel where you come from. And previously, I would have been ashamed of that, right? I would have been like, nah, like you know, like when people used to ask me where did you grow up, I would say something more white centered. So I would be like, oh, I grew up in Romford, which is like a white area in Essex. In reality, I grew up in Ilford, which is like yeah. South Hall number two, South Hall City. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's been a situation where, you know, I, I do feel it, but now, you know, I'm, I'm proud of where I come from. That's home. And it's yeah. that home that drives what I do in day to day in my personal life. But and it's that home that drives expert by experience and you know based on the reaction i've had for expert by experience there is a great need for us to engage working class communities on mental health no definitely and i think it's even it's like setting an example of the fact that you don't need to erase yourself you know mm -hmm. you even saying you know you grew up in rumford or whatever you don't need to erase yourself just because you feel like the the space is saturated with people who aren't like you know like that's not that's not what you're that's not the aim and that's not the motivations for doing excerpt by experience in the first place. So yeah, I think leading by example, I guess, is 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 the aim, right? Yeah, it's interesting, right? So, you know, as, as brown folks, we make ourselves palatable to white folks all the time. And, you know, yeah. that kind of erodes your sense of self. So if I'm having to do that in brown circles because I'm not from like a middle upper class background or I'm not from upper caste, then, you know, it's like that double erosion is, is, is mm. hard to navigate. But yeah, I think I decided, uh, like, at the start of Expert by Experience, I was like, you know, I come from a working class background, I come from Ilford, I come from these places that people consider like shit. Um, but, you know, like, I'm here and I'm I'm trying my best and I'm hoping that it inspires more working class people um, to be able to believe that they can do do amazing things, because, which is something I didn't believe growing up. I wanted to, to do something very... Uh, you know, like I didn't have these kinds of aims or anything. I didn't imagine I would have expert by experience. I guess to round this up, I would ask you, what do you see for the future of our communities and, and these spaces? And maybe particularly for you, what do you see for the future of male South Asian mental health? What's the future of expert by experience look like for you? Like, okay, so I'll answer like the question, like two areas. So what I see for our communities going forward is, so I've got a little nephew, Ahil. I love him like so dearly. Um, 
which is like, yeah, I love him so, so dearly. And I want him to grow up or any other kid to grow up and just be comfortable with who they are and be able to support what they want and be able to challenge all the toxic cultural practices that we have and the views that we have. And I want him to feel like, you know, he can do that. And that's that's my effectively role. That I, would, I just want him to grow up in a better world, really. Um, and for expert by experience uh, is for it to keep continue to growing as a publication to one day become legit, legit in the sense that, you know, we're able to pay our contributors. Um, and, you know, for me, the most important thing is that expert by experience retains this critical edge. So I'm like expert by experience is, a, is very political. It's very socialist. Um, mm. So I always wanted to retain that what what made it and while continuing to grow and develop. Um, and yeah, th- those are, the, I guess, the two things that uh, I see for expert by experience. There is like the logistical side. So I'm applying to become like a not-for-profit so we can go for funding and continue developing but like just i want it to grow and i'm more than happy to like i've always said i will take the the invisible role so like i'm doing with the rouge right now she has hambat kalenge podcast which is hers so i want more people to come to the publication i never want them to feel like the answer to me i founded it but it's not mine you come in you build your own thing and you run with it i'm just going to help help you and guide you and that's it Thank you to our listeners for joining us. We hope you found this episode as insightful as we did. Don't forget to hit the follow button to stay tuned on our upcoming episodes. You can also find us on Instagram at Rights Collective, on Twitter at The Rights Cole, and on our website, therightscollective.com to learn more about what we do and our other projects. Show notes, which include all information and links mentioned in the episodes, can also be found on our website. Don't let the conversation end here. Using the hashtag TRC Podcast, let us know how you navigate the complexities of your identity, what works and what doesn't, and what makes you feel most yourself. Before we go, we'd like to thank Inaya Hussain for editing this episode and producing this season of the podcast, and US-based artist and activist Kaki Kazi for the amazing cover art. A huge thank you also to Substeppers, a British-Asian duo for the music. To listen to the full track and more of their work, check out the link in the show notes. Thank you for listening and see you next time.